Hello and welcome to Softcats Explain It podcast series. This is episode four of season five. We're now halfway through 2022 and like current fuel prices, their episode count, subscribers and downloads just continue to increase, which unlike fuel prices from our perspective is good news. So we are as happy as a Star Wars fan watching the new and very impressive Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Spoiler alert, Vader is back. My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats Field Chief Technology Officer. We're here to explain it. And every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language. Over the course of the series, we'll be discussing new trends and ideas, as well as solutions to everyday problems in this fascinating and ever-changing world of tech. So the key is in the title. And on that note, I would introduce today's topic. The multi-cloud complexity conundrum. It's a mouthful. I actually wanted to call it Doctor Strange in the multi-cloud of madness, but due to copyright issues or potential copyright issues, we felt it best not to take that chance. We aim to delve into why organizations are finding themselves increasingly in multi-cloud. We want to discuss the drivers for this type of adoption. Are application and data-specific strategies taking over from cloud-first ones? And is that driving the use of multi-cloud? Can you develop and build and provision containers without multi-cloud? And how can we operate a multi-cloud when everything is running everywhere and anywhere? To answer those questions and much more, I'm joined by Matt Larder, Softcat's very own head of cloud, and Kote, a lead technologist, all the way from our friends at VMware. Thank you for joining me today. And on to the first question to Kote. What does multi-cloud actually mean? There's two things. One is just the the simple thing you would think it means. You're uh, using more than one cloud. That is multiple. And then, of course, you shorten it because no one has the time to say multiple cloud. And, you know, I think I think that is a realistic uh, thing. And I would say, you know, to add slightly more nuance to it, I would uh, bound it within an organization. Right. So like within an organization across all the applications and IT stuff that you support. Like if you're using like some public cloud thing or private cloud, or I guess you could say uh, whatever a traditional data center is, mainframes, AS400s, virtualized x86 things. Maybe there's some exotic things in there, some Raspberry Pi clusters that you're running. But like, I, I mean, I think, I think what most people think of is just like, we're using multiple types of infrastructure to, to run our organization. Now, I think, you know, the area that I care about that I spend most of my time thinking about in a work context is uh, basically like the software that organizations write and run on their own, like their their custom written software. And I think I think in that context, like I think of multi-cloud as as what I just said, but also like, um, you know, there's the old uh, Java uh, idea of write once run anywhere. I don't know if other people said that, but. Like it comes, it comes down to I think multi cloud is like supporting that idea that you can run because you have sort of like a common people would call it a layer of abstraction, but because you've kind of standardized what layer your software is running on instead of writing it directly to the uh, the type of cloud that you have, you're never 100 percent great at doing that. But it means that uh, your software is much more portable. Like it's easier to move it around to different things and just not y'all, but what a lot of people forget is like, you have to like manage all of that stuff. So you have all the systems management tools and things. And so, you know, multi-cloud comes in there that, that you can, uh, you can manage, you have tools that allow you to manage multiple types of infrastructure. So, you know, I used to like write systems management software and then be an analyst for it. And we used to call it uh, heterogeneous systems management, which is also a long phrase, but it was fun to type and say, but I think it's just kind of the evolution of like, you've got a whole bunch of different infrastructure running a whole bunch of different places. 
and you want to be able to manage it and also uh, make your the applications portable is one thing, but also just be able to use different services from different infrastructure and have it not be a hassle, not have your software bound to one computer and or type of platform, if you will. Sakota, so you, you've talked about software development into multiple platforms, multiple infrastructures, but a lot of our customers are still in that traditional sense of running virtual machines and not just developing software against these multiple platforms. Because you're talking about mobility of applications and moving stuff around, which 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 is not an easy thing to do in a traditional sense. So, so Matt, I'm going to put this to you. How do we get from the traditional layer of managing virtual machines, infrastructure, infrastructure as a service, which a lot of our customers are in, to that software or cloud native? I'll ask you a question what cloud, cloud native means in a minute, but that cloud native way of just focusing purely on software development to really bring to life what multi-cloud looks like it could be. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the first thing is, do you have to do that? And I think that comes down to one whatever it is the customer is running on top of those virtual machines and whether that thing in itself needs to be changed in some some shape or form to be a bit more cloud native as you talked about there lots of people myself included would argue that there's tons of benefits in going down that becoming cloud native route in terms of increasing agility reducing time to market making much faster safer and more reliable releases all those sorts of good things but ultimately you might be constrained by whatever it is that application is running on top of those VMs. Maybe it doesn't support all those ways of working. Maybe the cost of making it become more cloud native outweighs the benefits that you might realize. So I think the first thing to do really is understand what is the business process? How old is it? Are you experiencing any pain points and challenges in the way it's working today? And if not, I probably wouldn't say there's lots of benefit then in you changing how it works. Conversely, if you've got a problem in any one of those areas, i.e. it's a bit old and the experience and skills you've got in-house are dwindling, have left, and or you think that if that thing drastically changed, you could be much faster to market, then yeah, I'd absolutely say there's lots of benefit there in trying to think about how you would ultimately re-engineer what that is. But I think to Kote's point, the key for me isn't just to think about how you re-engineer that thing from being on a VM to running on something that's cloud native, like a, a platform as a service feature, but instead look much wider at what other cloud choices are out there that could completely replace what it is you've got running on the VM today. Because I'd say, eight, nine times out of 10, you'll f probably find that the vendor you're working with for whatever it is that app is running on that VM now has a software as a service option, which gets you completely to the other end of the stack and provides you a lot less headache in terms of having to manage something yourself and instead enables you to pass that responsibility off to somewhere else and you just consume that as features and functionality. So on that note, software as a service or SaaS as we you know, know it, acronyms do you class that in the same bracket as multi-cloud or is multi-cloud just a platform infrastructure play I, I would class it as as both yeah absolutely and i sort of think multi-cloud is just another buzzword in my view of something that many organizations have been doing for years many organizations have used salesforce workday office 365 etc etc in my view those are all just different types of cloud platform whether that's infrastructure as a service or software as a service to the to the um, case of those those ones I mentioned there and I think to that regard lots of people have been doing multi-cloud for many years but we've just now coined this term to set against where you're using lots of different platforms to your terms there Dean to summarize what it is we're doing and how we're consuming business process IT service etc so multi-cloud is a nice title where everything sits underneath that basically we've been doing for quite a few years just gives it a headline Cote, is that what we're seeing? Is that what we're saying? 
Yeah, I think once something has become a buzzword, it's indicative that it was once a useful tool for distinguishing something from the past, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Which, which is to say that, like, I, I mean, by no means is this con the concept we've been talking about multi-cloud like uh, pervasive and like you know part of the the IT oxygen, so to speak. I think the concept that it's basically just like all your IT stuff is more or less proven out, right? And and to that point, like, depending on what you are doing with this cloud stuff, like I would include, you know, SaaS in there, right? Like from the perspective of like, I don't know, a CIO or whatever, like if you're using SaaS stuff and you're running your own infrastructure somewhere, then it's all, it's all stuff you have to manage and have responsibility for. <laughs> and so like, that's kind of why I was going over that more, a little more nuanced thing of, of what multi-cloud means for like software development, because the, what it means changes as you go down the uh, sort of, responsibility stack as as you narrow what what you're focusing on um because otherwise yeah it just at some point it just is like you know well what is not multi-cloud i guess i guess you could have like one computer that is not on the internet that you run microsoft office on and that probably isn't multi-cloud <laughs> Okay, so we used the term cloud native earlier, uh, or I did, and I asked a question around that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into that one as well. So multi-cloud and software mm. development and all these kind of things we just described. Cloud native is a term that always, is also coming up. So is cloud native a term that drives multi-cloud? And what does the term cloud native actually mean? Well, I think I think the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF, which always makes me think of, uh, what, what was that... Uh, was it a Miami band, like something sound machine or something? Always Miami, makes me think of that Gloria for some Estevan and the something yeah, like that. Yeah, like there's like the, the CNCF music factory, I think. But anyways, they have a definition that I think I think is is pretty good. And and it kind of, you know, like like it focuses a lot on the outcomes. But like I think the easiest definition of cloud native is mostly technology based, which is essentially the software uh, is written and architected to run in containers uh, and that's kind of it. <laughs> I mean, you can you can layer a lot of stuff on top of it about um, what that implies about the um, the kind of operational abilities you get, the outcomes that you get, the tools that you have to use. But really, like as a, as another thought exercise, right? Like if if you had a piece of software that wasn't running in containers and likely managed by Kubernetes or some sort of container orchestrator, like I don't know if that's really cloud native. Now again, there's exceptions, um, and then layering on top of that, right? Like the i would call it architecture the design of your software it kind of falls out that when you're using containers it's uh as we used to call it it's, you have a distributed application which is instead of having like one runtime uh for the application uh you have multiple components that coordinate with each other over the network usually or over a network uh and so from that that way of doing things there's a whole lot of different like deployment and management all sorts of things that that fall out from that so based on cloud native and what you described, is that that's linked towards applications and data transformation. That's kind of linked towards that kind of conversation. Do we do we think that application and data transformation projects are going to supersede where customers have been over the last few years of cloud first strategies? So we do we think people are moving from cloud first strategies into actually we need to do application and data modernization to um, using you know the, the, the techniques or containers or managing it via Kubernetes. Is that the kind of conversation that customers need to be having and what they should be looking at as opposed to the standard cloud first strategies that we always hear? 
Yeah, I think I would agree with what you would say, just because, like, I mean, there's there's almost like I'm sure there's another bucket, but you know, you've kind of gone over three buckets of uh, what a cloud strategy would be, and and the first, like, I would rephrase it, not because you didn't phrase it well, but as just like moving to SaaS. To me, like over the past the initial years and the past ten years of cloud, like most of it was just like we need to move our stuff to a SaaS <laughs> setup because otherwise it's kind of ridiculous, and then I think. I, you know, I still talk with companies who uh, don't, haven't done that 100%, right? Like I was talking with a company last month that's just like upgrading their SAP system, <laughs> which, you know, which can say that's a very not yeah, SaaS. That's an investment in itself. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, 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 which is fine. Um, but I think for most people, right, like, like I, I, I would hope that most organizations, like they're not at that phase of their cloud transformation journey, right? They've kind of gone past that. What I think is most valuable for for most organizations is to focus on like, so the software that we write on our own and run to run our business internally or externally facing, it's highly likely that we could do better (laughs) just all around at it, right? The apps could be better. The way we develop it could be better. The way we run it could be better because we haven't really modernized our approach there or the stack and all that stuff. And then, you know, I'm not really like a big, (laughs) no pun intended, I'm not a big data person. I don't know that much about it, but it, but like it does seem like I almost think that we'll probably never and I don't know who I mean by we here humanity. <laughs> like I don't think we'll we'll ever be like satisfied with our ability to use data to decide what to do or to tell what's going on, right? Like I don't know. I I don't know about y'all, but I feel like every five years someone's complaining about how we've got you know like warehouses full of data that we don't know what to do with. I always think of uh, Jevons' paradox from the, uh, the the age of steam power, and basically Jevons' paradox was like to summarize it was that once you make the system efficient, you just consume more of the underlying resources, right? So as as you make using gas or steam power more efficient, it just means you'll run the machines more and get more machines, right? And I think that's kind of like I kind of think about data like that is like oh, once we really get, get good at it, we forget that like it used to be even worse <laughs> and, and, and we improved it a lot. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's always, there will always be room to do uh, more stuff with data. And so it's always worth looking into because uh, like, it's always pretty terrible <laughs> for the reasons I was just going over. I, I, yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Um, it's only growing and it's getting more complex. How do you, how do you sift through that stuff? I saw a stat recently that said that I think it was a huge percentage of data that's collected just doesn't get used or is thrown away instantly because um, mm. it's just irrelevant. But how do you get to that point where you understand it? So it, it's a challenge for, I think us in our personal lives, but even more so in business. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, we, I have, I have uh, three kids and a dog and uh, five fish and two snakes uh, and like so and and my wife and self and so we got a lot of stuff yeah to use the uh, <laughs> the family friendly word for it and like so I'm always and I think data is kind of like this too like I'm always trying to think of like what is a principle you could put in place to not have so much stuff I'm not really sure that data is the new oil thing was helpful because <laughs> it's sort of like I don't know I think data is just like the new stuff in your house that eventually you're gonna throw away Right. Like I, I, I think that anything that comes in your house, you should immediately think about when, how am I going to get rid of this? Right. Like it's basically at some point it's going to be someone's concern to get rid of it. And like, obviously not all data is like that, but I think if you have too much data, it's time to start asking, like, do I really need to know the air pressure of that, of, of the front tire of my bike, like on a five minute basis? Like, I don't need to, not that I would know that, but eventually that'll be available to me at some point. And 
I don't need to know that. So if you have a garage or a loft, they're, they're data warehouses, really. That's pretty much where we are with it. Yeah, there you go. You only need like a loft full of, of, of data, not a warehouse full. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, though, so, so, so Matt, I'll ask you this question. Are we seeing um, that potentially multi-cloud, that term, that headline, is it going to become a standard model for running applications or transforming applications moving forward? Because obviously there's a lot of options, certainly in public cloud. And obviously you mentioned SaaS. But are we, are we seeing that having a multi-cloud strategy potentially starting from a headline there is a driver to transform applications? I think it already is. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if we take the like SaaS part of it out there, because as I said before, in my view, organizations are already doing multi-cloud in that context. And we look at then just say the big three, four or five public cloud providers. I think multi-cloud from that regard is definitely becoming more of the norm. And organizations ask that question in terms of, should I be in multiple public clouds probably on a daily basis when I speak to them? And my answer is usually start with one and then pick second, third, fourth or fifth or however many there are there needs to be based on your use case and requirement. Ultimately, the public cloud providers have all got strengths and weaknesses. I'd say the weaknesses are probably like minimal in terms of when you start to really look at things and the strengths. You could argue, for example, maybe Google's a bit more of a leader in Kubernetes, given they kind of pioneered that front. Um, but equally, I think. As Kote touched on earlier, when you start to use more than one, you introduce operational complexity in terms of having that right tool set to make sure that you can govern and manage cost, security, reliability across multiple public cloud platforms that also have lots of inbuilt native ways of you doing that same thing. So I would always argue you start with one and you scale out from there based on requirements. But I don't think you should go into it thinking I'm going to use all three, four or five, depending on the day of the week. I think you should aim to use one to its entirety and then spin off into another if for some reason the first one isn't meeting your requirements. And on that note, do you think that organizations need to build the foundations of operational simplicity? I'm not sure if that's a term, but you know, creating that operational model that is allowing you or allowing developers or allowing the organization to have the capability to go to multi-cloud is that the first step that organizations should be considering as part of this kind of movement i think it definitely is yeah and i think for me there's a few sort of few things in there number one is we often talk about the right mix of devops expertise or people that can one develop look after and ongoing make release changes to applications that are running in a cloud environment but i sort of feel like we've forgotten other skill sets that are required to make sure that platform is well-governed, cost-effective, secure, reliable. And I think unless you put those foundations in place, we fall back to those stats that I know that you know that I love. For example, 32% of cloud spend being wasted according to Flexera this year. So for me, that's a representation of an organization has absolutely nailed the skills to develop and maintain applications, but they've not thought about or they've forgotten the other skills that are required to govern what it is they're doing inside cloud. So I'd absolutely argue to your point, you've got to think about the people, the skills, the process, the tooling that is required to have that heterogeneous view, as Kote termed earlier, across um, across the different cloud platforms. And in my view, you should be picking tools ultimately that make your life a lot easier operationally. And I think that's easy to say, right, but you'll find that most of those mainstream tools will have support for lots of different environments, whether that's public cloud only or then multi-cloud as well as, for example, what you're doing in, in SaaS as one angle of that. So on that note, so we, so I've heard the term CCOE, Cloud Center of Excellence. It's a term that gets banded around 
there's a fair few organizations out there that probably get organizations to pay a lot of money for them to create very large documents that define how you can build a CCOE. Is it realistic to think that, again, going back to headlines and buzzwords and CCOE, and, and I'd like to get a, a, an idea or, or a description from your perspective, what CCOE means, first of all, if that be the first question. The second question is, is it a realistic thing to write a very large document that defines what a CCOE is without the ability to actually do it, build the teams? Because is there a disconnect between you need a CCOE, it's a good thing to say, just like you need multi-cloud, but is there, is there a gap between being able to say it and actually do it and deliver it? And so the first question is, Kote, to you, CCOE, can you give a high level description of what that is? And then I'll ask you both really to give an opinion on, is it a buzz thing or is it an actual thing? Well, a center of excellence is definitely a thing. And I'll pursue the straw man of the question. And, and, and then we can make it into a real man once we visit the wizard. So a center of excellence is this idea that we, uh, there is a way of working uh, and best practices uh, that, uh, for whatever we may be doing, like software development. And uh, we're going to gather uh, all of that knowledge and probably on an annual basis, like update it. And people can uh, come metaphorically or literally to the, the, the COE and uh, learn how to uh, follow those best practices and do things. And as you discover the best practices, you publish them and then people kind of follow them. And so it's like any other body where you're trying to discover the best way of doing things uh, and, and kind of uh, spread them out. I mean, the flaw becomes that like if either the, uh, the best practices are no longer best or they don't take into account the context of people using them, then like they start to like not be good. Things that are not good are not good in general. Uh, and then and then the other issue that comes up a lot is like, I don't know, bad students, <laughs> right? Like like we see this even in the the good version of of a COE, which no one people don't use that term in, in the good version, which is like people can go to a center of excellence. They or let me generalize it more. They can start working in a new way uh, kind of officially with a group of people. And then when they sort of like return from their offsite awesomeness, so to speak, it's really easy for people to revert back to the old way of working, right? And so I think, I think that kind of, that's the straw part, the straw man part or straw person part of a COE thing is that like, unless a COE has, as you were kind of asking about, right? Like, unless it has some effective way of, enforcing people following the best practices but also more importantly often what the center of excellence needs to do is change the organization structure of people working in that organization as well right and unless you kind of change that context like it's going to be hard to like do things in a new way so i don't find the people i talk with like the idea of a cloud center of excellence because that's maybe that's the third part of of the buzzword arc is then the buzzword becomes uh, uh bad has a negative connotation, so you have to come up with a new one. Like people like to say labs. That that's always an enjoyable alternative <laughs> to the, the COE thing. And, and Matt, to, to to back to you, really. So, do do you think there's uh, from what Kote is saying and the question that I asked? There's obviously something there that you need to do cultural change, organizational change to meet this, if you like, this acceleration towards multi cloud because it is happening and we're seeing it. You mentioned a few bits. Is it a, a lot more simple than people make out and, and the areas you've described um, earlier, you know, getting those foundational components in the right place? Is that a catalyst to kind of create this center of excellence in a much more 
I suppose, agile way as opposed to having it documented and regimented? Yeah, I think so. I think also as a sort of slightly different take on kind of what Cote described is that I think if you go back 15, 20 years, IT was the center of the world in terms of managing data center, infrastructure, servers, storage, all that sort of good stuff. And as such, they were also the gatekeeper. When you then sort of go forward a couple of years and get to the point where AWS first came to market, what that did was create a freedom where lots of other people can start to interact with traditional IT, i.e. buy servers, buy storage, spin them up, spin them down. And what that led to ultimately was that other great term that we use around shadow IT, lots of people doing things that weren't necessarily secure, weren't done against company standard, and maybe then exposed the company to a level of risk. And so for me, the center of excellence was a a concept to start with that was introduced to make sure that one, you didn't slow down that rate of change or ability for other people to start interacting with IT <clears throat> at their own will or at needs, but also didn't didn't put IT in the way as both a blocker to their progress, but also a blocker to the business to make sure things were done in a well-governed, secure, reliable state. I think the reality is that centre of excellence is used, as Kote touched on, as a term, and as you mentioned there, Dean, to encapsulate what is ultimately a cultural shift required within the organisation. It's the ability to introduce new process, new tooling and new mechanisms for people to have that freedom, but in a, in a well-governed way of working. I think the reality of what organisations are doing is, yes, they're absolutely documenting where they are today and how far that is apart from that level of governance slash freedom. But they're then using that to try and then roll out organisational change, i.e. bring in silos of people together, swapping out older tooling, all those sorts of good things. I think <clears throat> there's definitely a bit of a hang up or a stigma in terms of how much of a change is required. Is that, like you say, write a document for that and then go off and make loads of organisational change? Or is it a virtual construct where you're, instead of bringing new people in, you're reassigning people, their roles, their responsibilities to make it all a lot clearer in terms of how those people, teams and process interact? In my view, it's the latter. I think the moment you start to bring in lots of new people or you start to set up lots of new process and teams, etc., feels like probably too much of a heavyweight thing to be doing as opposed to thinking about how you retrofit existing organizational team members bring them together because ultimately that's what you want to do you want teams to be working closer together you don't want teams to feel like they've sort of been sidelined and instead you've brought in a whole brand new team which is your cloud center of excellence so it's definitely something probably most organizations are doing but i think the extent definitely varies yeah you know i i to to, to add to that i mean i, th I think i think that's an excellent point is that having the big document, which is another phrase that's kind of loaded, but, you know, ha writing down <laughs> what what the processes are is kind of like really the only way you're going to scale even beyond like three people, right? Like you do eventually have to write it down. And, you know, if what you wrote down is good, then it's going to be great, right? Like for, you know, if you go back to like, you know, the late 90s and the early 2000s, where the idea of agile software development was being like figured out and and kind of spread out like all of that was written down in a book not even a big document and so like no one's like oh that uh that that extreme programming book that's just a big document from some center of excellence <laughs> that's terrible right like but like you do eventually need to like write all this stuff down like otherwise you know to be all like you know western canon person right like you know socrates hated the written word because he thought it would lose fidelity but like the only reason we know about him is because plato wrote it all down so it's like you know using only words and being co-located doesn't scale 
right? Like definitely through centuries, it doesn't scale. And so eventually, and probably sooner than later, you do need a big document if you're going to change how you're doing things. Yeah, books are good. That's my uh, my opinion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, no, and I think, you know, the discussion that we're having here, right, is like important because it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a baby in a bathwater situation, right? Where like oftentimes it's, or, or you could call it, you know, you throw out the baby with the buzzword or, or like the, uh, the dead buzzword. And it's good to sort of pick apart that like, well, I guess what we're really talking about is stuff that's not good anymore. <laughs> like, like don't, don't do the things that are not good. And I think, I think operationally, the other things that's important for the, the transformation stuff is kind of like what we, we've mentioned several times is that whoever is deciding what the new way of operating is going to be needs to have some like hands-on experience with what works and doesn't work, right? Like, and you need to add that feedback into like learning what your new process is. I think that's the part that I see organizations struggling with the most is, I don't know, you can call them management or leadership or executives, but the people who are kind of like deciding how you're going to work they often are not transforming enough themselves and they're often not transforming the context, the the factory, the organization and, and what people do and, you know, the tooling for it. And they sort of like too often push down on the, as they say, individual contributors, the staff to be sort of like, you should transform, but I'm not going to do anything for you. <laughs> right. Like it's you just need you just need to work better. And, you know, there's nothing about the system that's wrong. It's uh, it's you, the workers who need to change what you're doing. So as a summary there, the cultural shift is such an important part of this transition for applications to move towards a multi-cloud model. And without that cultural and operational shift, there's some challenges. And, and, and it's about trying to capture those challenges and solve those challenges. For sure. Yeah. The other point of that, I, I really liked like how Matt went over this a, a little while ago, which is like, yeah, if you're deciding to do anything in IT, you should understand the options and like the requirements for it and the needs, right? I think that's another aspect of like transformation and especially in the application area is like, like, you know, there's this phrase like, you know, technology is easy, culture is hard, but there, there is a part of technology, which is like understanding it, <laughs> which is often difficult, right? And, and unless you understand it, it's going to be difficult to know, like, I don't know, should we move to containers or like, should we uh, run Kubernetes here or just run it all in this cloud thing, right? And like people making those decisions, they do need to embrace this idea. Maybe technology is not hard, but like you should maybe read up on it a little bit and, and go through the hard thing of learning about it and what all the different options you have are. So on that note, containerization, you know, managing with Kubernetes and virtual machines is a big shift there. And our customers appear, organizations appear to be kind of in that shift. What, what is the difference or what are the differences between a virtual machine and containerizing um, services? Just a, a brief summary. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll demonstrate the maxim of uh, do what I, I teach, not what I do. In, in the sense of like, I'm, I'm not extremely technically versed on those two things, but you can use both of them the same way, more or less, right? But the difference between the two is how they're used primarily. Now, you know, containers can be like more efficient and built faster than VMs. I'm sure at my own, own company, 10 years ago, we probably had lots of uh, reports proving the opposite of that, you know, that VMs were totally fine and, and they, they, you could achieve the same things with it. I mean, you know, 10 years ago is a different time nowadays. We're all, we're all about the containers and, and whatnot. But I think the way that they are used is different. And it does come down to the technology that containers can be 
more efficient and smaller. And so you end up using containers uh, when you want to break your application uh, in a good way. You want to break it into smaller parts uh, that kind of are coordinating with each other, right? And conversely, you use a VM when you don't necessarily want to or need to do that. Like it's a lot easier to run big software, <laughs> so, so to speak, whatever that means in a VM, right? And it can be easier sometimes. I mean, nowadays, like I said, they're kind of at parity, but like there's different tools that work with VMs. I mean, I think the reason you see developers wanting to use containers is they're just so much faster to kind of build and cycle through. And, and also they can be free, right? Like you don't necessarily have to pay for container use, right? And, and you know, a lot of it is based on open source things. And so it's easier for a developer to get up and running on them. It can be faster in their development cycle, their inner loop, to use another buzz phrase uh, of, of what they're doing, which generally, I think, again, I couldn't tell you really the technical differences in a meaningful way, but the way that they're used uh, are pretty different. Uh, Matt, do you, do you see that containers would be the standard way that organizations will de de deploy or develop applications in future once that skill set increases and people understand how to use them at scale, not just maybe the developer world, maybe other you know traditional operators that need to transform. Is it, is it going to become the modern way that we deploy you know applications and services? Um, I'm not convinced it is, to be honest. I think they've been around for a suitably long enough time now that Lots of organizations are doing lots of cool stuff with containers, but is it the norm for every organization already? No, and probably, in my view, that means it's not going to be the norm for everyone going forwards. I think, like most things, it's use case driven. What is it you've got today? Does it make sense to containerize that, either because it's legacy and it's easier to make it portable between different environments, different platforms more so, or because the mechanism by which you want to release supports doing something in a bit of a different way through a containerized platform? I'd suggest, though, that most organizations are going to have a combination of traditional virtual machines running on an IaaS platform. They might have some highly containerized things running on Kubernetes. They might have some serverless things running in functions or web apps, for example, without getting too um, technical in terms, of, in terms of description of things, as well as then some SaaS platforms as well as. My view would be if you've got something today which isn't containerized and you're thinking, I'm going to containerize this, I'd back to Kote touched on, I'd just be thinking about why you want to containerize it. Is it because you know there's a reason why you can extract benefit from doing it in that way? Or is it because you sort of feel like you've heard your neighbor doing it and you feel like that's the right thing for you to do, which is often what we hear lots of. And again, in my view, I'd always be looking at the business process, trying to figure out whether you can do that in a different way to achieve a much greater outcome. And in most cases, that will be adopting other cloud-based platforms like a a SaaS solution as opposed to containerizing your traditional way of doing something. I like the idea of a neighbor-driven IT strategy, just to see what, uh, just look down the street and see what people are doing. That that reminds me, uh, recently I, I was talking with, with a group of like IT people and, and they use another strategy, not neighbor-driven strategy, but for some reason they wanted to move to like containers uh, as as the way they were running their applications. And, and they said that they they just took their existing applications and put them in a container without asking anyone, just to force people to do it. I guess that's kind of like the uh, uh, burning the boats. That, that metaphor doesn't quite fit because you're going somewhere, but the, uh, you know, you're just forcing someone to do something, kind of shoving them off a cliff so they can learn how to fly, uh, which I guess it works in superhero movies well, uh, but not really in, uh, in real life so much. Yeah, it's difficult to edit that, that journey. 
you know, go, go into the, 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 the director's suite and spend six months post edit, putting some nice graphics and <laughs> that's right. <laughs> some special effects to the green screen. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a real situation. And actually Matt, Matt you, so you mentioned things like serverless and functions. That's like a whole new world of conversation right there that we probably haven't got time to discuss today, but yeah, other options that are available um, on top of all the components that we've talked about today, but you know what we've been, we've been going for a while now, so I am going to wrap it up, um, but I, I'm going to leave you with, with one last question. What, what do you think is next? You know, you mentioned a few bits just there, Matt, around serverless and functions. But what do we think is next? Is it, is it just going to accelerate this complexity? Um, or is there going to be someone that says, you know what, I'm just going to strip it all back and go simple in, on this stuff. Is, is that even an option nowadays? What's next? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the last few years, if, if anything, have shown us this the proliferation of choice that's, that's out there or it's that's been accelerated. And I think in my view, what's next is a continuation of multiple choices, multiple platforms based on use case. I think that's the main thing. I think you need to strip it back from what the market's telling you, what vendors are telling you, what your neighbor's telling you, and just really work out what it is you've got today, what is wrong with that as far as you're aware, and then work out what the options are for you to improve upon that. And those options might be all the things we've talked about, but you might have to weigh those up against various challenges that doing something in a different way also introduces. So in my view, what's next is a continuation of what we're doing, probably with some new things added on top that we don't yet know what they look like and might come about over the next couple of years. But I don't think it's going to go back to a level of simplicity, as you asked around. Everyone just goes back to VMs or everyone goes to containers as like one route to one route to provision. I think you'll just end up with multiple different things in the environment. Yeah. And uh, I'll mention something briefly and then go to like, I think I think something that I see is like looming out there and and. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a cycle of the infrastructure that you're running on where uh I don't know, I've 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 been around long enough now in the in the IT world to realize that like I don't know, every 5 or 10 years we just rebuild the the entire stack. It's kind of annoying, but we do it. <laughs> and and like once you go through like the grieving cycle uh of like, "Oh, I was part of that and I liked it." You realize like, "Oh, this is a natural order of things. You know, tide comes in, tide goes out. No big deal." And uh, you can't be, what was the guys, that king that y'all had, Karnakis or whatever, who tried to hold back the tide? That's, that's always a good metaphor for things. Anyways, I think right now for the next three to five years, I think people will be focusing on building up what I would call a platform, but like all the middleware and services and the goop that developers use for their applications. Because we're just kind of emerging from like the infrastructure rebuild, which is basically like deciding that we're going to use Kubernetes and, and having serverless and all that stuff. And now the developers are kind of like, yeah, so can I get back to like moving pixels on the screen and like actually adding features to the software rather than building clouds all the time? So I think I think that's like what I'm eager uh, to see the majority of people return to, right? Because usually it benefits us, people who use the apps, uh, which is good. And then, you know, the second thing, I think what comes from that maybe this is the uh, horizon two uh, future, so to speak, is uh, I think what, what people will discover and are discovering is um, like all this legacy software and services that they have, that they've, um, they've been neglecting for a while. It's like, I think early on, you know, we made the point of, uh, or, or rather Matt made the point that like, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it when it comes to things, you know, you don't want to apply your neighbor driven IT strategy. And I think, I think there's a, there's kind of like a, a fourth or a fifth hidden thing of like, 
maintenance on, on your application portfolio, people are really bad at maintenance. <laughs> and that comes to bear that like, for example, uh, if we want to add a new way, I mean, retail is the easiest example. Like if we want to handle curbside returns, we uncover that our whole inventory system is just kind of incapable of doing that. And so we, we've lost some agility in our infrastructure. So now we have a legacy problem that, that we need to go address. But yeah, I think for the next couple of years, people will just be building developer stacks because, you know, we're not going to use the old ones because we don't do that. We, we like to go through and uh, rebuild everything. And they'll be building development stacks in the multi-cloud. Absolutely. That's multi-cloud enabled. Or as I think maybe even next year when we record this, we'll just say computers. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what they'll be doing. Yeah. Go back to basics. Let's do that. Yeah. Hashtag. Um, anyway, um, thank you for joining me today. It's been fascinating. Kote, really appreciate your time. Matt, as always, fantastic. And, um, and thank you to the audience for listening. Download, subscribe and listen. Um, we'll have some new episodes coming out over the next couple of months. It was fun. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guests. And remember to check out the three previous episodes in addition to this one. Also, if you want to interact, ask questions and provide comments when listening to the podcast, we now have a new WhatsApp number. That's 07548 759732. That's 07548 759732. Send us a message. We really want to hear from you. We want to listen to your feedback. And thank you for listening again. See you soon.